Well, good morning. So glad to see all of you here today on this, as Brian mentioned, beautiful uh, Sunday morning. I, I have to say, I may be in the minority on this, but when I went out this morning to take a little stroll, I also expected some nice, cool weather. It was kind of a little humid this morning, so I don't know uh, about you, but I was personally a little disappointed about that. I wanted to see some like 35 degree weather or something like that. Didn't happen. Maybe tomorrow, from what I hear. Maybe tomorrow. From, uh, if, you're welcome, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, I want to welcome you and thank you for um, being a part of our, our service this morning. And uh, we're so thankful that you have uh, chosen to join us and welcome those that are watching online as well. And uh, we certainly hope that you're doing well today. If you came in a little bit late, there is a QR code that should be in the pew near you. And uh, you can scan that card with your smartphone. That'll take you to a little information card that you can fill out for us. And uh, we would love to hear from you. And I'll just say, those of you that maybe have heard that announcement now for four or five weeks or so, that has been very successful, more successful than any other method we've used so far to get people to contact us. And we we truly, sincerely want to hear from you and get to know you um, a little bit more. Well, 2020 is where we sit, November 1st. We have two months remaining in what will probably be, for most of us, one of the most rememberable years that we have ever um, experienced in our lifetime. Uh, Those of you that that know me even a little bit, I am an early-to-bed, early-to-rise kind of person. But as someone said, I might actually stay up on New Year's Eve this year just to make sure that 2020 leaves, because I think we are all ready to kiss 2020 goodbye. One of the things that has made this year uniquely interesting is the hurricane season. If you're tracking it, we have now uh, entered into, uh, into historic category, 27 named storms so far. And so if you follow meteorology at all, they then go through the Greek alphabet, and we have reached all the way to Zeta. We haven't been this far since 2005. But here's the good news. If you're a person who likes to see records broken, meteorologists are saying two things. Number one, we got there faster than we did in 2005, so I guess that's something to be proud of. But they're predicting at least two more storms. So... We may yet break that record. When I was thinking about hurricane season, and if you're selfish like me, you're probably saying, praise the Lord, we got off relatively easy this year. But when it comes to hurricanes and problems like that, it's, it's kind of nice to have a warning, isn't it? That it's coming, that the problem is a real threat. About a month ago, I went through, our house has a fire system that's hardwired into our into our house i went through and changed all of the um all the uh smoke detectors to make sure that if we ever had a fire that the alarm would go off and make sure that we are warned about that well in philippians chapter 4 paul is going to give us a warning today if you have been following along in our study of this book we would we would probably come to the conclusion that things in Philippi in this church were pretty close to utopian. There doesn't seem to be, up to this point, a whole lot of problems. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of issues that Paul is addressing. But when we come to chapter 4, we are going to find a warning. 
And this warning is directed actually at two people in particular, which we'll talk about them in just a moment. But there is also a warning in these verses for us as believers, as part of the body of Christ, to understand that very often when churches fall under a threat, they are not often threatened by things outside of the body. We all are well aware of what is going on in our culture. We are all aware with what is going on in places like Chile, which we talked about through our missions conference. We know and understand I have a friend in New Zealand who's a minister there. We know all of the ramifications and the pressures that churches face, not just in our country, but in every country around the world. But here we're going to learn that very often the greatest threat to a body actually comes from inside. We're right to be wise when we think about what's going on in the world around us. We would be foolish to do otherwise. But at the same time, we have to understand that when Satan tries to get a foothold in a ministry, very often he does so from the inside. He causes division and strife among God's people. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 25. He said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Divide and conquer, it's as old as time. Well, in Philippians 4, we're going to find that there is a division that is taking place within the body of Christ in Philippi. In fact, this is so important and such an urgent matter that Paul actually names those that are directly involved because it was becoming an issue in the church at large. And it comes down to the fact that there are two ladies in this church at Philippi that are causing division. And the reality is this, where there is no unity there is no stability within the church body. When there is no unity and there's no stability, we very quickly can lose our witness and our effectiveness for Christ. And so as we stand against the world in which we live, we have to do so in a way that is unified. Now, before we get into the particular matters of Ephesians, or Philippians, rather, chapter 4, let me also remind you that no relationship, none, zero, no relationship or church will ever go without the friction created by conflict. I, I always like it when married couples say, oh, we've been married 50 years. We've never had an argument. What's wrong with you? Okay, likely a couple things might be true. You might be defining argument a little bit differently than I am. You might have one person who just doesn't share an opinion about anything, so there's no conflict because somebody always gets their way. Or you're just simply delusional. Anytime there is a relationship and there is a group of people that are put together in one place, there's going to be conflict. It's going to happen. If you've been a part of this church family or any other church family for any length of time, there is going to be friction. If you've been married for more than 16 seconds, there is going to be friction. If you have children, there is going to be 
conflict. It's not a matter of running from conflict or pretending that it doesn't exist. It comes down to how do we handle conflict? How are we going to address these issues when they arise? Because they will inevitably come up. So let's take a look at Paul's kind of description on how this conflict that is brewing in Philippi, how it is to be managed. Okay, notice in verse 1, Paul says this. He says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, verse 1 is a little bit interesting. Verse 1, in a sense, is a hinge verse, okay? It is looking back to everything that he's just talked about. We'll review that in just a moment in chapter 3, but it's also going to start looking forward into what he's going to talk about in, um, in the rest of chapter 4. Understanding our chapter breaks, verse breaks, they're not inspired. They were put in by mankind to try to make it easy for us to, to find. But I kind of see this as a verse that is looking back to everything that Paul has just said. In fact, in verse 17, he had given them this tremendous warning where he said, or, or, or encouragement rather, in verse 17, he said, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And then he gives a warning in verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And then he calls, in verses 20 and 21, he calls them back to truth. But our citizenship is in heaven as we wait our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Then verse 1, therefore, my brothers, in light of everything that I have just told you, this is how you are to live. And not only are we to live our Christian life in the way that Paul is going to describe, it is also going to look forward to tell us how do we handle conflict. How are they going to resolve this issue that was threatening unity within the body? Well, let's pull apart verse 1 a little bit and just look at Paul's words that he used to describe this church at Philippi. We know that throughout our study, we have seen that Paul has a very real affinity and affection for this church. He calls them brothers and dearly loved. This was a church family that he cared greatly for. In fact, he says in verse 1 that he is longing after them. It's an interesting Greek word. It's the only place, actually, that this word happens in the entire New Testament. But he is talking about his deep passion for this body. He cares for them. He loves them. And he wants what is best for them. He calls them my joy and my crown. When he thinks about these believers, he sees them through a sense of gratitude. He says that they were, they were a source of joy to him. They were a crown to him. They were very important to Paul. And as he is addressing them, he wants to keep in mind, and we need to keep in mind, that Paul then is calling them to remember these relationships and also how he feels about them. Now, he gives them a command, okay? He tells them to stand firm thus in the Lord. This word was used as a, as a verb. It was an imperative or a 
commandments. The keo is the Greek word. This word was often used by a commanding officer that was giving orders to his subordinates. This, this word was often used on the battlefield when they were called to hold their ground. They were to stand firm in their position. And so Paul tells this church at Philippi that in the midst of the potential for disunity in the body, understanding they're facing two threats, they would be facing a threat from the outside, external threats, stand firm. Stand firm in the truth. Don't waver. Don't backtrack the truth from the external pressures that you are facing. But it's also looking forward to say, nor do you cave in the fact of not dealing with the internal strife that is developing in your body. They were to stand firm. In what? In the Lord. In the truth of Scripture. So as we mentioned, Paul has already encouraged them to follow godly examples. He's encouraged them to watch and to mark those that were in error. He calls them to live as citizens of heaven, and now he is calling them to remain steadfast in the, in, the, in the time in which they were living. Now, yesterday, October 31st, marks a very important day in church history. No, I'm not talking about Halloween. October 31st, 1517 is a prime example of what it looks like to stand firm on the truth. While many were thinking about jack-o'-lanterns and candy, spent the day thinking about our dear friend and reformer Martin Luther. On the day that he nailed the 95 Thesis on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, beginning what would become known as the Protestant Reformation. And I won't get into all the details of that, but just thinking through Luther's bold faith and his standing against Roman Catholicism and the teaching of Catholicism, this man would have had every reason to keep his mouth shut, every reason to not get involved in even more conflict. And in fact, the reason for this, the reason that kind of drove Luther to eventually taking this tremendous step was the practice of indulgences. The selling of payments that people were giving to the church for forgiveness of sins. In fact, if you know anything about this point in time, a priest named Tetzel was commissioned by the archbishop at that time and by Pope Leo X at that time when he was sent out to, uh, to have a major fundraising campaign in Germany to fund renovations for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. This was a fundraising activity. They were telling people, if you give money, you can earn your way out of heaven or out of hell. You can get indulgences and you can have God's grace by paying this fee. Well, this put Luther to the point where he was going to stand against Roman Catholicism and their teaching. And so when he posts these 95 theses on the door in Wittenberg, it now be, he now becomes a marked man, a man in which people were going to threaten his life and pursue him, try to put him to death. But this man stood firm on the truth. 
And so when Paul says, stand firm in the Lord, he is talking about standing firm against heresy, but he is also giving us this commandment to stand firm within the body of Christ and not give in to internal matters either. So let's get to the internal strife, okay? So he tells them, stand firm as a commanding officer gives his soldiers to stand firm. Well, he gets now into the internal matters that are taking place in this church. Look at verse 2. He says, I entreat Udia and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He now urges these two particular people, these church members, that they are to put aside their conflict and agree within the Lord, agree in the Lord. Now, we don't know what the conflict was about, okay? Paul doesn't tell us what the specifics of this conflict was, but we can make a couple of, I think, conclusions about it. First of all, it does not appear to be doctrinal. This debate between these two women does not appear to be an issue over theology, Because we have no indication that Paul takes a side. He doesn't say, this person is right and this person is wrong. Therefore, you need to make sure that everybody gets their theology correct. Doesn't seem to be a theological issue. Because Paul simply tells them that you are to agree in the Lord. Paul doesn't agree with one or the other. However, it comes to his attention because it is causing friction and and development of factions within the body of Christ. It's also interesting, secondly, that Paul waits until all the way until chapter 4 to bring this up. If this was an issue over theology, if this was a debate over some theological issue, it would seem that Paul would have corrected them much sooner in the letter and spelled out this theology. What what that means is this. It means that the divisiveness and the argument and the friction and the division and the potential of splitting the church was over a matter of what? Opinion. It was over a matter that was inconsequential when it came to the essential doctrines of Christ. It wasn't Martin Lutherish uh, challenging the idea and the heresy of indulgences. It wasn't a matter of debating and arguing over the deity of Christ or over the resurrection of Christ. This was something that two people had a difference of opinion. They had differences of ideology, of their practical living out of the faith, not their theology, and it was creating a division and a potential split within the church. And by the way, in the process, ruining their testimony in the city. And so notice what Paul says. By the way, he says this, I entreat uh, Udia and I entreat Syntyche. He uses this word twice. So he's not saying, look, this one is out of line. This one needs to be corrected. I am urging this person to get right. No, no, no. He's urging both of them. You might say it this way. You're both being foolish. 
You're both acting like children. You are both putting at risk the gospel and the unity of the body because of your own selfishness. Instead of agreeing in the Lord, you are deciding to argue and debate and cause division within the church. And so he uses this word parakaleo twice. It means to beseech or to argue. In a sense, he is begging these women to come to a common mind in the Lord. Think about what unifies you, not what divides you. These two women were, by the way, lest you think these were people that were on the kind of periphery of the church. Notice the description of them that Paul gives in verse 3. He says that these women, they were people who had labored side by side with me in the gospel. With Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. They are believers. Not only are they just believers, they are committed believers. They're on the ladies committee at the church. They're on the decorating or whatever they were doing at that time. They are absolutely plugged in essential people within the body of Christ. Now, here's the problem. It's much like Achinson in Joshua chapter 7. When Achan decided to take some of the spoils of war into his tent and not bother to tell anybody, the entire nation of Israel was held accountable for that. In fact, God actually tells Joshua later in that chapter when he says, Israel has sinned. Everybody, everybody is being held accountable because of one man's actions. And what these two ladies seem to fail to to remember is that even when I am out of line and carrying myself in a way that dishonors God, it impacts the entire group. It impacts everybody. This was becoming an issue because this church, while it was sound in doctrine, was being torn apart over a conflict by two people. The problem isn't theological, the problem was relational. And so Paul tells them, and he calls them to think the same thing, to have this same attitude in the Lord. If it was a matter of opinion, they needed to, at some point, agree to disagree. But do it agreeably and do it for the sake of the gospel. Now, verse 3, Paul also recognizes something else. He recognizes that these two ladies need some assistance. Because, again, we don't have all the details. We don't know specifically what was going on. But in my sanctified imagination, I would assume that this problem was an ongoing problem. That it had started over who knows what. And over time, these two ladies got to the point where, well, if she's going to be there, I'm not going. I mean, I can't even be in the room with that woman. You know what she thinks. And meanwhile, the other one was on her Twitter account, Facebook account, whatever, and talking about the other. I don't know the details, but I know this. Paul says, you guys, church at Philippi, need to intervene. Because it is reaching the place. They can't resolve it themselves. And so he says in verse 3, he says, I ask you, true companion, to help these women. Assist them. 
Give them the help that they need. And, and, and I want to I spend a little bit of, of, of a moment on this word, this true fellow or yoke fellow, I think is the King James, or true partner or companion. Who is he talking about? Well, not to bog down in the particulars of the language here, but you, okay, I am asking you is singular, In other words, he doesn't seem to be talking to the entire body. He's talking to an individual. And he says, I am asking you, this individual, to intervene in this situation. Now, who is this person? All kinds of options have been thrown out. And let me just say up front, don't know for sure. But some people argue that Paul is talking about Timothy. Others are, ta- are say, saying, believe that Paul is talking about Epaphroditus, giving his, given his description of him earlier on in the work, in, in the book. Silas is a possibility. Luke is a possibility. Let me give you my best guess. I think he's talking about a man, and he's using actually his personal name. He's not using this in a general sense when he uses the word yoke fellow, that the word in Greek he's using here might actually be a proper name. Because he has named the two women, he names Clement, and in the middle of this, he gives us this other man, and he says, you yoke fellow, Suagas is the name, interesting name, Suagas, You step in and assist these women and bring them to common ground in the gospel. Now, I think we would have to say, those of us that have been around church any length of time, know that most internal strife that occurs within a body of Christ is not over doctrine. It may be over a nuance of a doctrine. It may be slicing the pie a little bit differently over a particular doctrine. But most churches don't have huge debates, arguments over things like the deity of Christ, especially in conservative Christianity. We don't argue over inspiration of Scripture. We don't argue over matters that are core in 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 doctrine, but we argue over philosophical differences, we argue over opinions, and it creates this relational conflict. In fact, if you're paying attention, COVID-19 has created in the church all kinds of things to fight about. It has created all, in fact, in fact, I read an article recently called Six Controversies in, the, in, in Today's Church. Let me reread that. Six COVID controversies that are in the church today. And so you have believers arguing, debating, fighting, expressing opinions over things like mask or no mask. Do we wear a mask? Do we not wear a mask? They make me wear a mask. I'm not going. They don't make me wear a mask. I'm not going into that place. And then around and around and around we go and everybody has an opinion. Then there's the arguments over social distance versus no social distance. As an introvert, I'm all about social distance. Perfectly fine. But for some, that's a struggle. Here's one that churches are fighting over. Change or no change. 
should just do it the way we did it. Or we should change everything. And this idea of COVID-19 has, has actually accelerated some change within the body. Um, the other argument that this article listed was regather or don't regather. It's always been interesting as we are now several months into this, you still have folks who believe we are reckless by being here this morning. We have others who believe we're fear, fearful because we're not meeting as usual. Just do what we do. So there is much to argue about. There is much to debate about. Oh, and in case you haven't also been paying attention, Tuesday's election day. There's a nice, good, non-controversial topic that believers are arguing over today. But we have to understand that what Paul is calling these two ladies to is the same thing that Paul is calling the church to, to put our personal opinions, agendas aside for the sake of the gospel. Even when we disagree on peripheral matters as believers, we can agree on essential matters. It's sad to me. It's sad to me. When you can have two believers and they get out a, you know, they get out a theology book and they start going through the core theology of the doctrines of the faith and, yep, I agree with that. Yep, 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 I agree with that. Yep, I agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Pews or chairs. Oh, I can't be in part with you. Contemporary music, traditional music. Oh, whoa. Can't be in a conversation with that person. You see, we have these things where we divide over things that are a matter of opinion. So in closing, last few minutes, let me just give you some realities concerning conflict, all conflict, not just conflict within the church. Number one, disagreements are inevitable because no two people are identical and never hold the exact same opinion. I've said this for a long time. My wife and I have been married now almost 26 years. And the longer we're married, the more we disagree on certain matters of opinion. Why is that? I've gotten smarter, I guess. I don't know. I can't say that in the next service because she'll be here. Disagreement over something is going to happen. Number two, disagreements even among mature believers are not always handled correctly. In fact, sadly, very often, they're handled abundantly incorrectly. Now, I I don't know why this yoke fellow was called upon to get involved in this situation, but I can't help but wonder if it was because both ladies refused to talk to each other. They refused to go to one another in Christ like adults. Instead of talking about other people, about that person, you ought to go to that person personally, like an adult, not acting childish and selfish by talking to everybody else about the problem instead of those that are actually involved in the problem. Again, it seems that these two women just couldn't, just, they just couldn't do that. Third, we see that disagreements left unresolved can cause tremendous harm to individuals and to churches. Now, in this context, obviously that would include families too, but in the context, Paul is talking about church relationships. 
So it's just like the human body. When one part of the body is not functioning properly, the entire body is going to be affected. And so when Paul says these two ladies that can't get this right, the more this goes on, the longer this goes on, the more impact and negative impact it is having on the church. And so when these disagreements go unresolved, they create difficulty and challenges and hurt, not just to those individuals, but those other folks in the church. Number four, disagreements are often resolved through the assistance of those outside the situation. What happens sometimes in any conflict, right? You, you can only see your perspective, and the other person can only see their perspective. And sometimes you need a person who has no, you know, no, no bone in the fight, no dog in the fight, no, no personal interest not picking sides. I don't like one over the other. I'm just trying to listen to the situation and give you a reaction to it. And so when Paul says to this yoke fellow, it may be that this impasse has happened and this person was outside of the situation, hearing it for the first time and was able to bring these two ladies to some form of resolution. Again, and sometimes that is agree to disagree. Disagreements, the last one I'd give you, disagreements over personal opinions are, to be, are not to be won at the cost of destroying unity in the body. If you heard nothing else that I said today, remember this. You don't always have to be right. And sometimes, especially in these discussions on matters of opinion, I see this all the time. Somebody makes a statement. It's not an eternal truth. It is not a theological truth. It's not going to keep anybody out of heaven or out of hell. It is not essential, and somebody else disagrees with that opinion. And then this person responds with a little more feist. And this person matches that with a little more angst. And before you know it, you've got a good old-fashioned argument going over something that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. And then, in the desperate attempt to be right and to win the argument, around and around and around and around they go, and their relationship is destroyed, it destroys those around them, and in this case, it often can lead to the place that even the church is influenced and impacted by two people who can't be adults who can't be mature believers enough to bring it to the point of a resolution that may be, we just don't agree. And I'll see you in heaven. Because it doesn't matter in light of eternity. And so, none of us, I think, like to admit very easily when we're part of the problem. But, but I wonder, in, in, in your little sphere of influence, are you the source of contention at times? Are you a source that fans the flame, irritates people? I have a, I have a person right now, not a part of our church family, I don't actually know this person very well. Nothing makes this person ha happy. Nothing. Nothing, 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 nothing. 
So Jay's approach is don't try. Can't make you happy. I'm not going to make myself miserable jumping through your hoops. Not going to happen. And so are we that kind of person just fanning the flame, being difficult, being, being, uh, being challenging? Or are we like this man, this yoke fellow that Paul entrusts enough to say, hey, help bring these people to resolution? Remember what Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Does it, it doesn't deny conflict. It doesn't deny that there's going to be problems. In fact, it assumes it. Blessed are those that bring peace, that try to resolve conflict. So the church has to be built on steadfastness, has to be built on unity. And so as believers, we have to resolve conflict in a way that pleases the Lord. Understanding that unresolved conflict brings churches to the point that their testimony is ruined and the body of Christ is divided and typically over matters that do not matter in light of eternity. So in closing, I would ask that you think through these verses. And if your name was inserted into verses 2 and 3, where would your name be? Would your name be in the Eudia and Syntyche section of the verse? Or would your name be in the yoke fellow portion of the verse or Clement? I'm not sure who Clement was. But would you be a person that was seeking to resolve the issue or a one that is creating the issue? Paul loved these believers. And the last thing he wanted was to see conflict destroy this body. By God's grace here at Grace, we don't experience this. And I pray that we continue to handle things biblically and lovingly so that we will always remain the church that is unified and the church that is moving forward for the cause of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we end our time together this morning, we thank you, Lord, for just this time around your word. And I pray that we would always be men and women that are, that are mature enough in the Lord to bring, bring conflict to a, a healthy resolution. It doesn't mean we will always agree. In fact, we probably won't. But it does mean that we can interact with one another in a way that honors you, even when we have a matter of disagreement, even when we are not completely on the same page in the, on an issue of opinion or preference, or, or philosophy. And I pray that we would remain a body that is unified on the truth, unified in the truth, and making sure that we are holding to the truth, as Paul said, that we are to stand firm in the truth that you have given to us. And may we continue to be a place that, that honors you and brings glory to you. We pray that you would dismiss us now with your blessing, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a...